0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're aboard the Vagabondia 3, heading deep into the Florida Everglades, where Dr. William Barton, a surgeon with fantasies of creating a new species, has assembled a team of scientists to track down the Gillman, last seen at Florida's Ocean Harbor Oceanarium. Following an encounter which leaves the Gillman horribly burned, the scientists perform a transformative surgery on him, revealing a layer of skin beneath his damaged scales, as well as a complete set of lungs, suggesting he may be more human than previously believed. But as the team returns to San Francisco with the Gill Man in tow, Dr. Barton becomes increasingly unstable. When his erratic behavior turns violent, the line that separates us from the animals is blurred even further. Grab your scuba gear and join us as we discuss The Creature Walks Among Us. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them, children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! Crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf.
1: By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life
0: evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. I'm going face. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic monster series. Today we're discussing the third and final film starring the Gill Man, 1956's The Creature Walks Among Us. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, who will also be kind to you if you're kind to him, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike?
1: We shall see, Dan. Hold your breath as long as possible, because we're going down for one last dive.
0: This is it, Mike. The last stop for us on this journey through the original original run of Universal's Classic Monsters. So I gotta ask, how do you feel now that we've reached the end? Do you feel like a like a changed man at all?
1: Yeah, I definitely do, but like in good ways, for the better. Like, I filled in a lot of gaps, a lot of movies I've always wanted to see, never had the time to. So, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, it's been a lot of fun, I must say. You know, it's it's been a blast so far. And I got, I'm got i also, you know, a little melancholy, right? Gotta be because uh, for now, it seems to be at the end of the run. But I'm just I'm very enthusiastic to keep watching monster movies just till the cows come home.
0: I'm right there with you. I've never watched all of them in chronological order like this. I think I've seen all of them before we started doing the show. But yeah, this is my first time going through them in the order that they were released. This is my first time really diving into the history of a lot of these movies. You know, so it's been really fun. And I didn't expect the show to be quite as popular as it is. So really grateful for all the listeners we have we love hearing from you love that you guys are listening and enjoying and you know it just means so much to me here here
1: definitely yeah yeah and as you say like it was a lot of fun to watch this stuff in order i feel like we really got to know these characters along the way a lot better we could track whatever however minor or major any of these monsters had uh an arc of any kind and i feel like there were a few there all the different versions that we came across it's been a blast
0: I was going to say, I'm always excited when there is an attempt at continuity. We've seen the Frankenstein monster evolve over time. You know, he got burnt up in the second one, and then the results of that kind of carry over into the subsequent Frankenstein movies. And so there's no real need for that sort of continuity, but I love that that attention to detail. It's sort of like, you know, when I watched the Friday the 13th franchise, like straight through, there was more attention to that sort of continuity than I had ever expected. So I love that. I'm really excited that we're done, but Also, like, I'm really excited for where we go next. And we'll talk more about that, you know, at the end of the show before we close out. For those of you who've been following along with us, you know, we all know that Universal International had been phasing out their B pictures since they were fully acquired by Decca Records in 1952. So it's not really a surprise, at least to me, that this whole Gilman series, you know, sort of ends with a whimper rather than a bang. But Mike, what did you think of this third Gilman movie? Was this your first time with it? Did you find it to be a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy?
1: Satisfying conclusion to the trilogy? Not necessarily. Okay, here's the thing. Like, it's one of those instances I feel like it's not a great presentation okay but I love the concepts and ideas that they tried to go for with this movie you know like they aim so high and just kind of peters out at the end I don't even think the movie ends right the movie just stops at one point you know it was over and I kind of was like wait a minute it's over but I had a lot of fun with this one a lot more than I thought I would it isn't the first time I saw it, apparently, because I went to relog it on Letterboxd, and it's like, you already watched this movie. I was like, I did? I do not <laughs> have any memory of this one whatsoever. To me, it was pretty much like watching it for the first time. And I don't know, man, like, if you could just get past the fact that they don't really have the time or the money or any of that kind of stuff. And they just, it's kind of like, we're wrapping this up. If you can kind of drop all of that and just try and get into again, like the concept and all that kind of thing, like sure. The execution is rough, but I think there were some ideas here that were worth exploring. And I ended up having way more fun than I was expecting to. Um, I was hoping for other stuff, maybe more stuff to happen. We'll get into that. But I was pretty pleased for the most part. I don't think it's like, quote unquote, a good movie, but I did have a good time watching it. And for the final movie, I'm glad that I had this sort of unexpected good time watching it as well. I'm glad Abbott and Costello last month wasn't our final film.
0: I'm right there with you. I agree that there are a lot of interesting ideas at play here. But I think on a script level, some of those ideas are little half-baked you know they don't really okay. explore these ideas to the degree at which they probably could have uh, especially considering the runtime you know we have 80 minutes and it feels like there's a lot of padding here there's a lot of underwater there's a lot of a lot of sciency conversation that I, I don't really feel as deep as it needs to be And and there's not a whole lot of Gilman. There's not as much Gilman in here as as you might think there is. Certainly not if you've seen the poster. The poster for this is incredible. It's like a giant Gilman straddling the Golden Gate Bridge. It's such an exciting poster. And the movie never even gets close to that kind of thrill ride. Yeah, I kind of glaze over through a lot of this. I don't find a lot of the characters to be all that compelling. I think that the female character we have here, she's sympathetic, but I think that's because she's abused for most of the movie. I don't think she is otherwise all that interesting. Certainly not as interesting as the previous two heroines we've gotten in Creature from the Black Lagoon movies. Having said that, I think the actress who plays her does a great job. But it's mostly just a bunch of scientists, all with their specific field of study, out there hunting a gill man who spends the entire back half kind of docile, right? He's not the rage machine that we've seen in previous movies.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, and like, that is what I kind of found interesting, not necessarily about the Gilman, you know, kind of not really running around going nuts, but like the idea that it's changed and they're trying something new and and, and like the concept evolving and we'll get into it, but like why the gill man isn't running around causing a mock. I found that to be an interesting conceit to a degree, you know, but it is always much more fun when your monster is causing havoc and it's yeah. kinda like this one they've tamed him, neutered him, I should say might be a better term.
0: I mean, he does you know, get some cool action set pieces towards the end And I think the motivations for those, they make sense. I just wish that there had been more to sort of stimulate that kind of response from him. It's clear in this one specifically that he is a victim. Everything sort of gets blamed on him, despite the fact that he's pretty much on his best behavior. Right. He's completely justified in his violence, but they just didn't give him enough reasons, I guess. I I, I wanted some more carnage, especially in the back half of this. Not my favorite Gilman movie, and honestly not my favorite of the universal monsters. I think this ranks pretty low for me, and it's mostly because like, I'm kind of with you in that the The concepts are cool and I wish that it really went all the way with it, but it it falls flat for me for most of it without having that Gilman carnage it feels I don't know it feels like it's missing something through most of it
1: yeah I mean because it is like it definitely yeah. is you know and I'm not going to ignore that either like you know I admit that it's not great right Like, <laughs> you know, it's not what I necessarily wanted but for what it is like I was surprised about how much I could get down with it but I have all the same thoughts and feelings that you express as to why you know it's not working and, and all those kinds of things as well I'm not I'm, I don't want. I think I'm delusional here. But I was like just genuinely surprised to be like, okay, well, if this is what it is, I'm going to take it for what it is. And like for what it was, I was like, wow, I'm surprised I enjoyed it as much as I did.
0: For sure. All right, well, let's get into it. I don't have a ton of information, Uh, you know, as we've gotten towards the end here, my sources have sort of dried up a little bit, you know, I can only find so much concrete info here. So once again, this film is produced by William Allen, the sort of creator of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, at least on paper. What's interesting is that Jack Arnold did not return for this one, for the third. He directed the first two, he didn't direct this one. This was actually the directorial debut of Universal's longtime assistant director, John Sherwood, feeling as if he had nothing left to offer the horror genre. Jack Arnold decided to move on on to more like a material. And it was his idea to have Sherwood, who was the AD on the previous two, move up to a full director. And the screenplay was written by Arthur Ross, who we've talked about before. He penned the original Creature film. According to film historian Tom Weaver, Ross's idea for the film came from his desire to explore the human half of this half fish, half man creature, which is why you know so much of it is about the transformation from fish to amphibian to man, Right. Right. The principal photography lasted from late August to mid-September 1955. The Creature Walks Among Us is the only creature film not to be shot in 3D.
1: Oh, wait. Oh, man. (laughs) That's a bummer. We almost had a trifecta there, like a 3D trilogy. Wow.
0: I get why DECA Records trying to cut costs and save as much money wherever they could. I can see why they would not shoot this one in 3d but how cool would that have been to have a full trilogy all in 3d we've we've never had that i don't think in in film history we've never had that
1: no i mean and then in like the 80s they waited until the third one to do a 3d movie right Right. jaws 3d friday the 13th part three i mean freddie waited till like part six or something but whatever
0: Like Revenge of the Creature, much of this one was shot on location in Florida, including Wakula Springs for the underwater sequences, much of which, for whatever reason, weren't used. What? They shot a bunch of it. Riku Browning played the Gillman for the underwater stuff. I guess what they decided to do was repurpose unused footage from the original creature film for a lot of those scenes in the beginning of the film, the first half.
1: Okay, cuz I was going to say like did they reshoot that stuff? It looks cleaner. It looks better. I don't know. And to me, like we'll talk about it when we get there, but some of the angles and shots and stuff, it was way more disorienting, way kind of sharper. I was going to remark about how good the underwater stuff was in this particular film whereas in like previous movies I was kind of over it. <laughs>
0: yeah so much of it was shot for that original film it was just unused takes okay the only new footage that we really get with riku browning i think it's in the sequence where the creature or the gill man attacks the boat in the middle like right before he gets torched
1: when he flips it
0: yeah and then i'm almost positive riku browning also played the Gillman for the underwater scenes in the back half in the new suit they shot same actor, right? He came back for the third one. But um, all that stuff in the first half is is from the original. Okay. Or at least was shot for the original film. The suit this time, before the accident, so his pure Gilman suit, they created a third suit or a new suit for this one. It's much simpler, as you would expect. You know, these things tend to get more streamlined as they go on. This was a two-piece suit. It had a front piece that went from the neck to the ankles and then a back piece, and they would secure the pieces. The head was borrowed from Revenge of the Creature. So they just took... okay an unused head or recycled a head from that one and stuck it on this new suit i don't have really any information on the new suit the new look post burn gill Man, but i will say i do kind of like it i think that it's kind yeah. of interesting that he is much more of a hulking creature in the back half yeah i kind of like the smooth look
1: yeah i don't know how he put on the lbs he got some gains You know, when he was in his coma. But you know what this made me think of? And I'll just say, I kind of like it too. I think it's a very interesting way to go. I mean, you know, he's wearing clothes so they can get away with not doing a lot, but. It makes me think of what they wanted to do originally. Right, Dan? Wasn't it yes. supposed to be some weird, like super smooth body all over, no scales, no fins, none of that business. And it, there was like a, a photo that looked like some kind of warped ET knock off. Like it was horrifying, maybe for the wrong reasons, but here for whatever reason, I like it too.
0: Yeah, it's a good look. All right, so let's get into the cast here. We'll do like the principal cast. There's only like six of them mentioned at the top instead of the whole cast list here. Jeff Morrow plays Dr. William Barton. Morrow was an American actor of stage, screen, and radio. He began on the stage around 1927 at the age of 20. He did a lot of plays, lots of Shakespeare, including Twelfth Night, Romeo and Juliet, and Macbeth. During the 1940s, he served in the U.S. Army during World War II and then continued his stage career and landed the title role on the Dick Tracy Radio show oh wow in 1953 he made his film debut in the richard burton biblical epic the robe throughout the 1950s he appeared in a mix of a budget films and b westerns and science fiction films often playing the hero his first sci-fi film was this island earth in 1955 nice in the latter part of his career he did a lot of television mostly westerns plus a few episodes of the twilight zone and his last tv role was in the 1986 Twilight Zone episode, A Day in Beaumont.
1: Excellent. Loved the Twilight Zone.
0: Rex Reason plays Dr. Thomas Morgan. What a name.
1: Can I just say as well, in the voice to back it up.
0: Like I looked up his filmography and I was like, this guy should have been doing like voice work for cartoons. And he's got an incredible speaking voice.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy should have been on radio. He should have been on a news anchor with this voice in that face
0: after serving in the U.S. Army from 1946 to 48, he began his stage career at the Pasadena Playhouse. In 1951, he was given a screen test at Columbia Pictures and was subsequently cast in a leading role in his first film, 1952's Storm Over Tibet. By 1953 he moved to Universal International where he appeared uncredited in the Rita Hayworth film Salome. He stayed with Universal for a little while, appearing in two films under the name Bart Roberts before insisting on using his real name. Why they had him change his name to Bart Roberts from Rex Reason I have no idea
1: Art Roberts.
0: Uh, he's probably best known for his role as Dr. Cal Meacham in This Island Earth. By the late 50s, early 60s, he was doing a lot of TV for Warner Brothers and NBC, including Man Without a Gun, The Roaring Twenties, Perry Mason, and Wagon Train. In 1961, he walked out on his contract with Warner Brothers when he was being considered for a lead role in The Manchurian Candidate, but he chose to quit acting altogether, and he spent the rest of his life as a real estate broker with occasional voice acting work. Oh, wow. How about that, Then He did do some voice acting. Lee Snowden plays Marsha Barton. She was born Martha Lee Estes, and she got married at age 16 to her high school classmate James Snowden in 1952. They had two kids and then divorced in 1955. Following the divorce, she moved to LA from San Francisco, where she began working as a model. She got her big break when she was featured in a Jack Benny Christmas show that was televised from the San Diego Naval Base. When she walked out on stage, the 10,000 sailors in attendance had such an enthusiastic response, 11 Hollywood studios contacted her the following day. Wow, that's like all of them. Right? (laughs) She ultimately chose Universal due to the training program provided by their film school, where she began classes with Clint Eastwood, James Garner, and John Saxon. Clint
1: Eastwood, fellow Creature alumni.
0: And uh, John Saxon, a guy we see a lot in in horror, just in general. Mm -hmm. um, Big fan. She went on to appear in All That Heaven Allows, The Square Jungle, and, of course, The Creature Walks Among Us. In 1956, she met accordion player and future husband, Dick Contino. By 1960, she was ready to leave acting altogether to raise her children. She briefly returned to acting in 1971 when she appeared in a stage production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Nice. Greg Palmer plays Jed Grant. After serving in the U.S. Army Air Corps as a cryptographer, Palmer began acting in 1950 and pretty much made a career out of guest appearances on a ton of TV shows, including 21 episodes of Gunsmoke, 18 episodes of Death Valley Days, Plus Bonanza, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Wild Wild West, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Kung Fu, and a number of films before retiring it altogether in 1982.
1: Right, I wonder who he was on Star Trek. He looks like a real red shirt to me. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Maurice Manson plays Dr. Borg. Oh, speaking of Star Trek. Yeah, resistance is futile, Mike. Especially tonight. Born in Canada to Russian Jewish immigrants, Manson moved to New York to pursue a career in Broadway through the 1930s and 40s. During the war, he served in the U.S. Army as a medical photographer. Oh, In the 1950s, he moved to Hollywood, where he was cast in mostly small roles, including The Creature Walks Among Us, Hellcats of the Navy, and Spirit of St. Louis. And rounding out our cast of scientists, James Raleigh plays Dr. Johnson. There wasn't much of a career to talk about. It was pretty much all small or uncredited roles through various films and TV shows. But in addition to his acting, Raleigh worked as a high school drama teacher, and among his students was none other than Robert England.
1: Oh, Freddy Krueger himself? How about that?
0: As for our gill man, as I mentioned before, Rico Browning reprised his role as the underwater gill man. And then this time we have Don McGowan as the gill man on land. Okay. McGowan was probably most noteworthy for his starring roles in The Werewolf in 1956, 1962's The Creation of the Humanoids, and the 1962 TV series The Beachcomber with Cameron Mitchell. Most of his career was spent playing small roles in movie and TV westerns, all the usual suspects, plus Blazing Saddles, where he played Gum Chewer. One credit I found particularly interesting was a 1958 TV pilot for Tales of Frankenstein, directed by Kurt Siodmak.
1: Whoa, what? Put it on the list.
0: It featured Don McGowan as the monster. Apparently, the show never got picked up, and I believe the pilot ran as a sort of short TV movie. It's only about a half hour long. I'm pretty sure it did air, but I thought that was really cool that he played the monster as well. Yeah, and
1: that still directed it.
0: Yep. That's pretty much it. I do have a story though. Apparently Universal received a letter during production from a man named Jeff Livingston, who really hated the title, The Creature Walks Among Us.
1: Oh, I actually quite like this one. You know, I I think this is a good, for going with The Creature at this point, I think Walks Among Us is, that's what happens in this one.
0: Yeah. I like the title also, but Jeff was not impressed and he sent a list of like, 16 alternate titles and i love reading these alternate titles now like i said i don't believe that these were ever seriously considered but they are really entertaining so i'll go through them now the creature stalks the city Mm, okay the creature turns the creature's jungle no the creature against the sky the roaring creature the creature's secret
1: no this guy's fired
0: Yeah, I'm not hiring him either. The Creature at the Crossroads. Nope. Creature from Out of the Sea.
1: What? He's from the Black Lagoon already.
0: Fifty Fathoms Under the Creature.
1: Whoa, wait, no. Now he's just mashing up titles from other movies and that makes no sense.
0: This one doesn't make any sense, but I'm suspecting that he was hoping the story would be something different. The Creature and the Mermaid.
1: Get out of here, man.
0: The creature rises in the Everglades.
1: The creature rises. We can just stop right there.
0: I do kind of like the creature rises a little bit. The creature dead or alive. The creature dead or alive. The Mm. creature has two faces.
1: But it doesn't.
0: I mean, kind of does. It has two distinct looks.
1: It's not like... Zephod Beazelbrock. Oh, no, 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 no. And <laughs> that in, in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right?
0: Fair enough. The Creature Mastermind and Creature from the Roaring Everglades.
1: Well, oh, this guy, you know, wasted his time. What can I say?
0: Yeah, there's no way he was doing better than The Creature Walks Among Us. The creature Walks Among Us might be my favorite thing about the movie. The title's killer. It really is.
1: I think it gets the point
0: across perfectly.
1: You know, now he walks among us, like it's gotten worse.
0: And considering the themes of like, you know, what separates us from the animals? uh, I think that, you know, considering those themes about how similar we are, I think the title works on, on that level as well.
1: Totally agree. All
0: right, so let's get into it here. We're gonna try and get through this uh, as best we can. There's a lot of re- repetition here. To be honest, like I said before, I, I sort of glaze over a little bit through a lot of this dialogue, but you know, we'll take it a scene at a time. We got some cool credits. We start with the familiar Universal International Globe mm-hmm. logo. This is the last time we're gonna see that, Mike.
1: Oh man, I would have saluted if I remembered.
0: Yeah, whatever it is we do next, we will not be seeing that same logo. So the movie like gets started right away. It opens on this bridge in Florida. A blonde woman and presumably her husband, we will find out that it is her husband, Dr. Barton. They are speeding along this Florida highway and they arrive at the dock and there's this boat. And in this opening scene, we meet all of our characters, right? It's a pretty efficient opening sequence.
1: I feel like it's a little like it's a little too much almost, you know. I like when movies take maybe a scene or two, maybe three, to introduce all of our main characters, and I realize we're kind of in a rush. But this movie, I swear to God, Dan, have you ever seen Spies Like Us?
0: I have not seen Spies Like Us. Oh my God.
1: Okay. So Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, and there's a very famous scene in that movie where they're passing themselves off as doctors and they meet a bunch of other doctors and they're all shaking hands. And the scene is literally like this where they're like, doctor, 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 doctor. doctor. And it's all I could think of in this because it was like Dr. Morgan, Dr. Barton, Dr. Borg, Dr. Barton, Dr. Barton, Dr. Borg, Dr. Borg, Dr. Dr. Martin. I was like, oh my God.
0: Yeah, it is exactly like that. Okay. So we'll, we'll take it a step at a time here. We'll establish all of our characters. So we've got Dr. Barton who was in the car. He is a surgeon. We meet Dr. Morgan, who is a geneticist. Dr. Borg is a Rotgenologist, which I looked that up. That is sort of an antiquated term for a radiologist.
1: Oh, okay, okay
0: which explains why he's so into the sonar. Radiology and sonar really don't have anything in common as far as I know.
1: It was a real sci-fi invention where it's like we're measuring the density and the depth of these particular objects at the same time. It's like, all right.
0: We meet Jed Grant in this scene. He is not a only. doctor. He's the only guy on this boat that is not a doctor or the captain.
1: Yeah, he's like in the first two movies, he, he'll do like most of the diving and the guy in the second movie who caught the Gill Man, like he reminds me more of that guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, he refers to himself later on is like a beach bum who's not a scientist so he's sort of like doing all the grunt work he's the deckhand on this particular ship uh but he comes into play later with marcia barton who is uh, dr barton's wife the, the one doctor we don't meet he's not on deck is dr johnson he's the biochemist um, and right. he is hard at work in the laboratory
1: yeah and this is like right out of the gate we get a lot of sort of attitudes and dynamics because the bartons are not doing well they do not like each other there's a there's a rift there Dr. Barton does not trust his wife even though his wife doesn't want anything to do with any of the other men around her including her husband Dr Morgan like couldn't be nicer is just like the the perfect gentleman that velvet voice Dr Borg I don't know he's okay he's just sort of like what you would think of as just like your standard doctor looking type of dude older past middle age kind of thing and then Jed he just comes across as like real arrogant and mm-hmm. later on he's going to be way more of a dick too so while everybody's being thrown at me at least everybody is very distinct and like kind of Different.
0: Yeah, and as things unfold, it becomes clear that the characters who really have the most development are Dr. and Mrs. Barton, Dr. Morgan, and Jed Grant. That's sort of like the love triangle or love square or whatever shape. <laughs> love of, squared. <laughs> there's, there's, there's four of them, but there's no love. That's the thing, is that Jed and Dr. Morgan are both into Marsha, who is married to dr barton there's no love there if anybody she's kind of into morgan he's the only one who's like not making a pass at her or giving her a hard time you know he's just being a nice guy and i think even though this movie will end and there's no romantic subplot maybe she ends up with morgan after effect but yeah that's sort of our dynamic here that's our core four plus the gill man everyone's getting ready to set sail i like this giant
1: boat they have this time you know it's like a whole lab on the river there like they go in he's like is the lab ready i'm like the lab like the last boat didn't even have a bathroom like you had to you know you had to go off the side of it like this one's got everything you would want or need you know they feel perfectly safe here this feels more like they're prepared this time
0: yeah, th- I mean, this is definitely not the Rita. I kind of miss the Rita. I, I kind of miss the old sort of African queen type vibe.
1: Yeah, yeah, but this is a total, like, sequel level up, you know? This is, like, what you want to see is, like, in the last one, you had the broke-down boat, In the next one, you got, like, the badass one with all the money.
0: Right. We go through uh, a, a quick scene. There's a little bit of dick measuring amongst the men. They discuss their plan to hunt down this gill man. They're going to use the rotenone, which has been proven to be effective. Oh, yeah. It's funny
1: how that carries over across all the movies
0: yeah i wonder how they learned about the rotenone because there's no carryover character from the last one
1: well most of them most of them die too right Right. that's what we forget (laughs) and the other ones like they take off they don't they're nowhere near water for the rest of their life they move to the desert
0: dr borg shows us how the sonar works so many of these scenes just take way longer than are necessary
1: because a lot of it is that where it's just like the dialogue is explaining things right Where it's like this is how it works, and it's like okay.
0: I wonder if this is because we're watching so far into the future where sonar, like we know what sonar is, we don't need to explain
1: exactly. That's I think that's exactly what's going on here, you know. And we we've seen it before in Universal movies too, but we've seen it done smoother and better. Yeah, it just feels like clunk. Like, we're going to just sit here and, and have a lesson for a minute.
0: This scene is interrupted with a bang. This, I thought, was kind of funny. So everyone rushes outside to see what the commotion is. And it turns out Marsh is standing over the rail with a rifle, shooting sharks or attacking some porpoises. Shooting sharks? Like, you don't shoot
1: sharks, lady. And then she goes on to talk about, like, oh, I have hunted all this and that. And I'm like, but you're not hunting right now. You know, that's not fair, what you're doing. And you're just wasteful.
0: But... She looks really good doing it. What I mean is, the outfit she's wearing is like it's such a fun outfit. Just want to stop and admire that for a second. I always feel like the women in the the, the creature films always have stunning outfits, oh, yeah. stunning wardrobe. But hers is really distinct and pretty cool here. The guys all decide they're going to set out in this small boat with an outboard motor. Basically, what they're doing here in this scene is they're chasing down a lead that Jed Grant got at some point previous before they set sail. He has a contact down in the Everglades. And uh, it's a man named Morteno, played by an actor, Paul Fierro. Basically, Morteno had uh, an encounter with the Gill Man. He was out there fishing while he was out there. He was attacked by the Gill Man. He was able to stab the Gill Man a couple times. Actually, survived the encounter with a few scratches on his face. He says he's crippled. He doesn't elaborate on that, so I can't speak to the extent of his injuries. But uh, point is, he's alive and was the last person to see the Gill Man. He tells that whole story.
1: Yeah, he's barely alive. Like he's got that huge gash across his face. Like he's not getting out of that bed anytime soon. It seems like he's basically in shock for the rest of his life. I think.
0: Yeah. And, like, one thing that I love about this story that he tells, like, he, he constantly refers to the Gilman as, like, the devil. Like, he was yeah. fighting with the devil. I loved that. But at the end of the scene, Dr. Johnson asks him about the knife that he stabbed the gill man with. And so they examine the knife. They discover some things in the blood.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: They discover that there are some similarities to human blood. It's a little bit different. I think they sort of point out that it's like halfway between like fish and man.
1: Yeah, yeah, they talked about that in previous movies too, like the missing link aspect of it.
0: Yes, I don't know that it was ever to this level, but yeah, they certainly have. Now they know they're on the right track and now they have to formulate a plan as to, you know, how to locate the Gillman and eventually capture him and, and bring him back home.
1: Yeah, that's the hardest part right there is to successfully capture this thing first. Like, it's been done. It's not like you can't do it, but, you know, they've lost lives doing it. And, you know, that's the whole Once you capture it, you're good. You know, everything after that seems to be cool. Like, just don't bring it to SeaWorld. Like, they do the right thing in this one. Like, we'll talk about it. They, They bring it to a place that's much more secure.
0: Yes. And we also get the seeds planted for the core conflict between Barton and Morgan. Typically in these movies, we've seen one guy who's really into the idea of like capturing possibly killing this thing as like a trophy hunter and then you have your ethical scientist who wants to who really wants to leave it alone, but certainly not kill it, just study it. And that's what we get here. Barton has all of these, you know, aspirations of possibly capturing it and then creating a new species. Morgan, you know, has the opposite goal in mind. Like he's going to go, but only because he wants to, you know, study the gillman. He talks about like the jungle and the stars, and I'm not entirely sure what he's talking about.
1: That was also in the first movie where they're like, well, if we could figure out how this thing survived In these extreme environments, maybe it'll help us survive in extreme environments such as space, you know, you know, other worlds and other planets. And like, I think Barton is taking it to the next level where he's like, we need to use this creature to modify ourselves. So that we can survive in extreme environments like it. Barton is like we've heard that it can do both. It goes on water and it goes on land. If we could figure out how to like like how it does that, maybe we can like use that and and do that to us too. Except not water, but space or something like that.
0: Yeah, Barton's like the guy in the movie who wants to like create his own army of underwater super soldiers, right? Like if he can harness the evolutionary power of this thing. Not literally, I'm saying like in other movies where you have this villain who wants to like exploit something beautiful out in nature for you know uh, military purpose. That's Barton. How do I use this for evil?
1: <laughs> he's kind of like Norman Osborne. he comes across a little bit, it yeah, yeah right? like this wild geneticist who's like trying to patent all these crazy inventions. he's a mad scientist too. and I think Barton has a touch of Frankenstein.
0: Oh yeah, I could definitely see that. He's kind of like what Frankenstein should have been. Very yeah. different from the Henry Frankenstein we got in the Universal movies. But he, yeah, you're right. He's he's sort of more like the Victor Frankenstein that we know from the book and other adaptations. The next scene, we get plenty of underwater footage. Morgan and Grant are gonna test some of the equipment that they have. Marsha decides she's gonna go swimming too, uh, d- despite the fact that her husband says no. But she's been cooped up the whole trip, right? And she needs to get out and, and stretch her legs. So. She She decides to go out and there's a little bit of talk. They set up what's going to happen later in the scene that if you go down too far, you could potentially get what's called the raptures of the deep, where you sort of get a little bit drunk or lose control of your faculties, right? Just from the pressure. And she's like, it's okay. I've never been drunk. I'll be fine.
1: Well, okay. So I know that if you are not properly trained, like you can really fuck yourself up diving and So, um, I don't know that I've never heard the term raptures of the deep. Uh, I don't know how long recreational deep sea diving was around before these movies. This really freaked me out for some reason. Like, she goes down and she starts to float at normal, and then she does like this weird underwater dance, and it like truly feels like someone who's like, Doesn't know where they are anymore. You know that it has lost their faculties completely. It was a weird thing to include. I'm glad it's in the movie, but it's just like another extra added level of danger with the diving. You know, we've never, we haven't seen this before in the in the creature film. So I'm glad they included something like this because you know it's almost like a public service announcement (laughs) or something like that. And it's handled in like a very, for me, it was like a very eerie kind of thing to watch. You know, this person like kind of start drowning because they. didn't even really realize they were underwater anymore is how it came across.
0: I agree. I I would say that I think the sequence, like a lot of them in this movie, kind of goes on a little too long. You know, they they just shot a shit ton of underwater footage. Not to mention, like we see the Gill Man, finally. So all that's happening in this sequence. Our divers are never really in the same shot as the Gill Man, right? Because it's all older, repurposed footage. But it's cut together really well. I still buy that they inhabit the same space.
1: Yeah, And I like the new footage because I I as I alluded to earlier, there's different angles. Like there are these sort of bird eye view angles underwater that are very disorienting and just I feel like they got like maybe a little closer or like something cooler or cleaner about it for some reason this time around I was getting into the underwater stuff
0: yeah I I dig it yeah so the the gill man doesn't really get noticed by them too much I don't think they see him but the whole situation with Marsha sort of pulls the plug on their time underwater they have to get out and uh, attend to her so they know that they're on the right track this is When they sort of formulate that plan of how they're like gonna go out there and uh and capture him right
1: yeah i don't know if this is the shot but there's several shots and i and i actually think this movie looks pretty good is there's a few shots of these guys posing in frame that look amazing like some of the compositions in this movie are just great you know and maybe it's just because of the time that's just the look of movies at the time or whatever but like because i know this wasn't you know anything too special there's some shots in this movie that I'm just like, oh, that is so gorgeous. Just like the depth and the way they're lined up in the frame and everything is very nice. And I think this is one of them where they're all like huddled in one room together. And one guy is like in the doorway, the other guy's like up on the table, one guy's like sitting in a chair, and the other guy's like at the desk. And it just all looks very nice.
0: I agree. I think that the one thing that all of these these movies have in common is that the underwater footage is always really captivating. It's always really well composed. But in my opinion, it feels like they wanted to use as much of it as possible. These are the scenes where I just, if I've seen it before, I might skim through it. I get that. But okay, so before they can put together their plan for the evening, we have to take care of Marsha. She's carried up onto the boat. I think she's carried by... Grant? There's a little bit of, like, angry, jealous husband Oh yeah! after this, and so we get a little bit of a taste of, of what's to come later in the movie.
1: Was it Grant or Morgan or whoever it was was also like, hey, I don't think it's not obviously paraphrasing or, or whatever, but the gist of what I got was like, look, buddy, like... I'm just trying to save your wife's life. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to hit on her, dude. Like, she was (laughs) dying. Barton is like, get your hands off my wife. Like, how dare you look at my wife?
0: He needs to take a chill pill.
1: Look, she's gorgeous. Okay. But, dude, like, you're not that bad looking either, you know? And you're, and you're like this famous scientist or whatever. Have some confidence, bro. You landed her in the first place.
0: (laughs) Chill the fuck out, dude. She confides a little bit in Morgan here. You know, we get a little bit of her side of it. Apparently, she and, and her husband have not been happy for quite some time
1: okay so this kind of stuff and sort of the lack of the creature and you know it's very heavy on the kind of machismo at times i don't know this had more of like that noir vibe to it again yeah a lot of ways you know i mean it definitely leaning way heavier into science fiction overall but You know, if I had to throw in like another ingredient in there, definitely there's a lot of that noir kind of the jealous rage stuff, you know, that kind of thing I always feel like comes straight out of those movies as well. You know, you always got like Edward G. Robinson is trying to hold on to like his trophy wife and all those kinds of things. So
0: Oh man. Now now I'm wishing this was kind of a film noir. Could you imagine, like, the new creature in the clothes with a fedora on
1: But, I mean, I'm not kidding, though. This feels like if you watch Key Largo or, or things like that, like, it has that sort of vibe going on.
0: 100 percent and i didn't pick up on it before but you're absolutely right as i think about it you take the gill man out of this 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 does have a very uh noir-ish vibe from a narrative perspective okay so now it's like nighttime, and the guys are gonna take a boat out onto the water they're gonna load it up with a bunch of equipment somehow dr borg is gonna get his sonar machine onto this little thing. They've got the rotenone, they've got a harpoon gun. The plan is that they're going to use the rotenone to knock out the Gillman. Plan B is the harpoon gun, but uh-huh. uh, M- Morgan specifically tells Grant we want him alive if possible, so don't hit him in any vital organs or anything like that. And then the last resort are the pistols they have. They're also armed, well, not armed, but they also have some gas lanterns on board which will uh-huh. come into play. And that's the plan. And so they head out into what now looks like a small like inlet like it looks like a lagoon right it's not like the ocean anymore they're not out in the open water
1: yeah well the the creature kind of like lured them into a trap it got their boat stuck it made it so they can't go any further without getting into a smaller little like rowboat and, and then going like deeper in. You know, where they need to see Yes,
0: and they they talk about that, about how he's a smart creature, right? He's not stupid. He's capable of planning and setting a trap for them. And that's exactly what happens. He forces them to come to him in his own territory, so to speak. So eventually they do find him. They catch him on the sonar. The first time we see him, it's like like 40 minutes in. Is it that long in?
1: Wow, I didn't realize that until he pops up out of the water. So you know what this whole sequence reminded me of? And I, I feel like I've been saying that a lot this episode. Aliens.
0: Oh, aliens, yeah. Aliens.
1: They're looking at the little scope and it's a dot and the guy's going, all right, he's right in front of you. All right, he's past you. Already right, turned around. All right, he's coming like right towards you. And it's just like the beep, beep, beep. Uh-huh, beep. You uh-huh, see like uh-huh. the dots moving. I was like, this is like right out of aliens. Really cool.
0: So, yeah, almost 35 minutes in, which is like the halfway That's point. That's
1: terrible. That's, I mean, we've seen repurposed footage of him, but like this is the first time like he's, he's, you know, gonna interact. Basically,
0: with he pops out and destroys the spotlight on the front of the boat. So now they have to use these gasoline lamps. And they're literally like little containers that you fill with gas, and then there's a big wick that sticks out of them. And it's like literally mm-hmm. as simple as that.
1: It seems super dangerous. Oh, uh, yeah. Like the kind of stuff they stopped making. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like, talk about a fire hazard. The Gillman finally emerges. It's a great shot. They clearly used some uh, wires to pull him out of the water. But he, like, leaps out of the water towards the back of the boat. Grant wastes no time. He fires a harpoon, like, straight into the chest of the gill man. Yeah, dead center. And then, like, fires a second one straight into his side. Double tap for good measure. In his rage, the Gill Man grabs the gas can, shakes it around, and then throws it, getting plenty of gas on himself. Grant tosses one of the lanterns at him, setting him completely ablaze, and then he drops straight into the water.
1: Just, oh my god, just incredible. Incredible.
0: Great stunt, great effect shot. I don't know if you could tell for the shot of the Gill Man like completely engulfed in flames. Yeah. They did actually have like a stunt man on fire, but it was also like a composite as well. So they could add more fire. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I think it was a 100% successful, to be honest. Like, seamless. Send this shot to the corridor crew guys and have them try and figure out how it was done. And just like, I think I might have mentioned it before, maybe not on this show, I don't know. But like, the sight of someone on fire is like, to me one of the things of like filmmaking that like that's what you get with filmmaking you know like how when are you ever gonna be able to see something like that let alone know that it was done safely and no one got hurt and the kind of poetry of body on fire in motion uh like the visual language of that has always amazed me and it's confounded me and I've never gotten tired of watching that. I don't know what that says about me folks. We've seen a lot of monsters get set on fire. We've hell, we've seen this guy get set on fire before. Yeah. Right. But yep. this for some reason, this just takes the cake. Maybe because it's a closer up shot you know, the way the shots composed, it's not like a a super wide shot or anything. Like it's a mid shot. Like, I don't know what it is exactly the proximity of him to the other actors. It just all feels super dangerous, but I mean, I, standing up and and clapping when I'm watching this.
0: I think the reason why A Man on Fire is still so satisfying is because it's like incredibly dangerous stunt, but it's like one of the earliest stunts. I feel like for as long as they've been making movies, there have been ways to like engulf a man completely in flames. And that's always going to be impressive. You don't really see it so much anymore. I mean, when you do, like I think of Anchorman, how it was like sort of a joke. They just had a guy on fire walk through the frame exactly but even then like i'm like they, they lit a man on fire yeah i think that that's really what it comes down to at least for me why i find it so satisfying to see it's just because there was no way to really fake that i mean like yes this was a composite shot here and it was in the original uh, to some degree they still lit a man on fire yeah the fact that they could do that safely and no one got hurt is incredible so now the gill man is pissed he rocks the boat, knocks everybody out. Before he can really do any serious damage, the rotenone takes effect and knocks him unconscious. Morgan mentions that it, if it hadn't been the drug, it would have been the fire. He's got third-degree burns.
1: Yeah, I was even amazed that he was able to capsize them. He jumps into the water after being set on fire, and then he like jumps out under the boat, and they go flipping out, and then... Um, he pops back up again but it kind of doesn't have the energy to keep
0: going in the following scene it's post-surgery uh we've got sort of a mummy gill man oh yeah dude good call that didn't even dawn on me man (laughs) dude
1: a two-in-one
0: he's wrapped head to toe in bandages he is unconscious he's in sort of a coma i don't know if it's medically induced i think it's probably probably a medically induced coma just to keep him sedated i can't tell
1: it could be i don't know because he kind of ends up waking up on his own. I feel like it's a pain coma kind of thing. Like
0: or they drugged the shit
1: out of him, right? Like they pumped him they said with enough of the uh of the knockout stuff though. Like not just the the rotenote stuff, but they said they poked him with enough knockout juice to like kill a elephant or two or so, you know, so like he's got a lot of shit
0: running through his system. It was the darts of the harpoon. They they had some drugs on the end of them too. This is where the evolution conversation gets sparked a little bit, progresses a little further. The gill man is having trouble breathing, so his gills were too badly burned to be functional anymore, so he's having trouble getting oxygen. They notice like his respiratory system, it's similar to humans, right? His chest is rising and falling, and they decide to do a tracheotomy.
1: Yeah, I thought this was pretty cool. He's talking about, like, he's got both sets or whatever. And they're saying, like, we need to open up the gills and, and do that that way. And then they're like, no, he's got um, lungs. But then they're like, how do you access the lungs? And they're like, they discover that sort of flap that they have. It was really interesting how they went through his organs. And they're like, oh, it's like he's not getting the oxygen he needs, but he can breathe oxygen. Like, what is happening here? You know, and they're like, oh, this secondary gills in the way and all that. So I thought that was a little bit of fun business while they're trying to figure out how to keep him alive
0: yeah it works and in the next scene we get a little bit of grant bothering Marsha and dr barton witnessing a little bit of that fueling his jealousy a little further but he has a job to do here he can't get too involved with that right now
1: but he is setting himself up for later he's being like ah, i'm gonna be a dick to you later don't have time for this right now because I actually do my job, but see you around.
0: Like they've had him under observation ever since the tracheotomy worked. They've noticed a change in his metabolism. He is now able to convert oxygen the way we do.
1: Yeah, he's starting to walk among us.
0: And as they're having this conversation, he starts to stir. Uh, we see his arms raise a little bit
1: yeah so like he he's having these fits of rage or power and energy like coursing through him, but then he's like collapsing again. So yeah, like-
0: he doesn't have the strength to like burst out of the chair or out of the bed, but he does break the bonds and then suddenly all four men in the room have a have a gun pointed at him immediately. They decide that they're going to cut open a little bit of the face, right? Like I said, he's head to toe wrapped in bandages and Morgan grabs a pair of scissors and cuts off the strip covering his eyes. He's got like cotton balls in the eye holes and He's wide awake, right? That I find to be a really effective shot of just the eyes poking through.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're real eerie and creepy, and plus they're human eyes now. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the last two movies he had like weird fish eyes kind of pupils with his mask and everything, and like now these are clearly a person human eyes. Yeah.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely, and that.
1: that- It's very unsettling.
0: Yes. I don't know if it was intentional or if they just didn't bother to hide it, but like you see the eyelashes. You can't mistake it for anything but human eyes. Now we know that they're headed back from Florida to Sausalito, California. Barton sends like a a telegram to get his home prepared to receive the Gilman.
1: All right. Now is as good a time as any to tell you, Dan, that I was confused to all hell where in the world we were in this freaking movie at all times because the poster has San Francisco on it they're talking about San Francisco, but then they're talking about going to the Everglades and then they wind up in Sausalito, but they're also going to go talk about San Francisco later. Like I am just so confused watching it this time, like watching this one.
0: Sausalito is like right across the bridge from San Francisco. Geographically, that's where it is. So Sausalito is actually where George and Gracie, the humpback whales from Star Trek 4 are from. Okay. All right. Now
1: that you mention it, I remember this time last year, I was driving through San Francisco and I think we passed Sausalito. Okay. Yeah. All right.
0: (laughs) When they shot Star Trek 4, they used an aquarium in Monterey, but- geographically in the story, it's supposed to be Sausalito. So that would be right on the other side of the bridge. So yeah, I mean, like I said, San Francisco at the top, the ship, the Vagabondia says San Francisco on it. But like, yeah, it's the greater San Francisco area.
1: There's just no reason to like make it this confusing. Have them be in San Francisco this time. They found them in the bay. Like
0: that would be cool with me they took for granted that we would be that familiar with the bay area geography but i only knew it because of star trek 4 i knew sausalito was right across the the bridge so he's getting everything prepped to return home they took this ship from the bay area down the west coast they go through the panama canal to cross over into the gulf of mexico and then up into florida
1: so they got this thing through customs is that what you're telling me like Made it back through the Panama Canal with the creature in tow. So Barton,
0: when he's sending his telegram, he mentions that they're going through the canal.
1: This is insane, right? Like, you tell me it's not crazy from a screenwriting perspective. Like, my one note is just have it all set in San Francisco.
0: Or, like, I don't know why San Francisco and the Bay Area had to be involved at all.
1: Yeah, make it make it Florida again. Yeah,
0: or if you if you wanted to make it a little more exotic, maybe set it in Mexico. Conceivably the Gilman could make it from Florida to Mexico.
1: Hey, or, you know, maybe he made it halfway and got stuck in Louisiana? Is that possible?
0: Or the Bahamas? Like there's so many different ways, so many
1: different ways without including
0: that. San Francisco. No disrespect to San Francisco. It just seems like a long way around.
1: Look, I drove through San Francisco I don't like it. That was one of the worst experiences of my life in recent times was driving through San Francisco and oh man I still have uh, nightmares sometimes but no I'm sure it's a lovely place with lovely people. Yeah I've
0: been there it's it's fantastic but there's like there's no reason to incorporate it into a creature from the Black Lagoon movie I think. Once they get through the canal they are officially like on their way back up to Northern California. There's like a scene where, where Marsha like wants to come check out the gill man but her husband won't let her into the room with it which that I kind of understand because this thing could be dangerous and he doesn't want her to get hurt.
1: My one thing about that is that, like, she's been there now the whole time. Like, she kind of has like a right. I feel like for whatever's going to happen next, you know, yeah. like she deserves a piece of the action because, like, she risked a lot. Even if they made her stay on the boat, like she still went there and like was in danger and everything. So let her see the damn thing.
0: Yeah, the guys are are now stripping away all of the the bandages. They've noticed that the fire has burned away a lot of the scales and now the gill has a skin he has like a yeah. dermis the way humans do which is real strange
1: i love this idea of that like beneath the skin concept where like there's this double layer of life or some i don't know how to really put it but like they're trying to show here is like on the outside he was better well suited to surviving underwater and adapted to the pressures but like you cut away all that and now he's better suited to like living on land and all this shit and it's like who knows if there's a layer beneath that where he's gonna grow feathers that was the sort of like i like that sort of rationale, that line of thinking that they're going through here with the concept.
0: I will say this about this new suit. In this scene in particular it stands out, and and I understand why, but the suit, when it's dry, looks like a rubber suit. That's my only real complaint. In the scenes where they're able to throw some water on it once it's glistening, then it, it looks pretty good in my opinion. But like in these scenes here, yeah. it's totally like bone dry. I'm like, uh, oh, it looks like a rubber suit.
1: Yeah, I was hoping they'd make some excuse as to why he still needed to be somewhat moisturized partially. Like the rock in Fast Five, like he's always just glistening for no reason. Like maybe that needs to happen.
0: Yeah. So they get the bandages off his head and hands, and decide, "Oh, we got to get him some clothes because without the scales, he's going to be all sensitive and exposed and all that." So
1: is his manhood exposed now? <laughs> because like I remember, in Shape of Water, she like signed how it like opens up and comes out in that Gill man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe his extremity like
0: guard was burned off. You have to get him a cod piece maybe. So as they plan to do that, there's a little exchange between Dr. Barton and Grant who had like just followed Marsha out onto the deck. And there's, it's kind of like a, Hey, what were you doing out there? You know, kind of suspects, Hey, you're out there with my wife, leave her alone. I got a job for you. Make up some clothes.
1: Yeah. I love that too, where it's these two tough guys acting so tough and like, you know, whipping their D's around and it's like, stay away from my wife. And it's like, I wasn't bugging your wife. And then he's like, all right, I, you got a job to do. It's like, what do you want me to do is like make some clothes for the monster (laughs) here's this sewing kit nothing against obviously like you know my, my great-grandfather was a tailor, and my grandfather was a tailor. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just, like, it's so funny, especially in these times. It's not considered macho to sew or anything, and it's just, like, these guys, like, yell at it, like, what do you want? I want you to sew a shirt for this guy.
0: So after that scene, we get, like, the celebration scene. All five of these guys are hanging out, having drinks. Dr. Barton getting a little bit wasted here. Yeah just going on about these, like, fantasies that he has about, like, human evolution. And, like, you know, you change the metabolism in people. Maybe you don't have any drunk drivers anymore. I
1: love this shit. Even though this is sort of the bad version of it, but I love this kind of character. Give this guy all the research grants in the world and you know i want to see his like dr moreau nightmare world vision come into fruition he almost reminds me like i don't know if you saw guardians 3 or if anyone listening has but he reminds me kind of like of the villain in that the high evolutionary who has the resources to do all of this crazy shit and he's just like i'm gonna change one gene and one chromosome, or i'm gonna take this and put it together with that animal and see what happens and it's like reminds me of this guy where he's got all of this like evil ambition <laughs> yeah
0: i think of, of that meme that spider-man panel of the, the doctor who turned himself into a dinosaur and like he's got this incredible ability to like turn people into dinosaurs and spider-man's like look with this technology you could cure cancer he's like but i don't want to cure cancer i want to turn people into dinosaurs
1: that is the perfect example
0: yeah, yeah. there's a whole conversation about nature versus nurture here Barton sort of makes the case that like nature can be, you know, manipulated that the sort of evolutionary process, like if they can harness that they can they can manipulate it in ways that we as humans can benefit, whereas Morgan is more so of the nurture side of that where he believes humans and animals all behave based on how they're treated, right? You know, so if you treat something well, mm-hmm. it'll behave well. He doesn't think they've done anything more than just like change its scales to skin, sort of strengthened its lungs that it already had. There's a couple of different conversations happening here. It's a little bit t- tough to parse through, but they
1: talk about nature and nurture so much in a lot of this, especially the the creature movies, which I don't mind that or anything, but like I know this is the age-old discussion. It just kind of feels moot at this point because they're doing both to the creature. Yep. They're changing both. Yes. That's how it seems to me. And it's like they're arguing about not doing that is how it feels. I'm getting a little confused.
0: You're not the only one. He's like, it is
1: the way we nurture the creature. And it's like, well, then what do you call what you're doing now? You know, you didn't just burn it and leave it there to take care of itself and let nature heal it like it did in the last two
0: movies dr morgan we're talking about he's like biting his tongue and going along with it you know because he's agreed to be part of this expedition and be part of this whole thing but he he severely disagrees with dr barton on a a great many things that's clear but he's already kind of committed now yeah he's
1: the guy that eventually he goes i let it go too far i should have stopped you earlier like he's one of those guys
0: at this point, he's realizing that the best he can do is treat this Gillman with respect, treat it well. As we learn for the next 15, 20 minutes or so, Morgan will later uh, point this out to Barton. You know, it was docile the whole trip back because we were kind to it. We treated it OK.
1: It's true because they didn't put it in a tank, chain it to right. the ground and have everyone stare and laugh at it. They were clearly like not treating it well in the last movie. And here they're taking care of it. You know, and, and it's got to sense that it's defenseless and they're not killing it.
0: But as the scene closes out, we get maybe the ugliest scene between Barton and his wife. He's drunk. He knows that she doesn't love him, and he has kind of a tantrum. I don't know that he goes so far as to assault her, but the scene definitely seems to be heading in that direction.
1: He's been verbally abusing her the whole movie. There's psychological abuse definitely going on.
0: And immediately following this scene, this is the most awful thing. Barton storms out, and then Grant Moves right in.
1: Right in. Like a revolving door.
0: I really hate that this is like Marsha as a character. Like this is her role. She's just the abused wife who is not respected by this other guy who is about to almost sexually assault her. It seems. Yeah. This is where I really wish she had more to do. But I think that uh, Lee Snowden does a great job with the material she has to work with. I do actually really like her performance. And so just as she is possibly about to get sexually assaulted, the Gill Man breaks out of his room and rescues her, which is really cool. He, like, bursts into the room, destroys some doors, some furniture.
1: We got a bit of a rampage. Yeah, we got a little action here. We get some monster action. Yeah,
0: and and he lets her go. She's terrified, but um, he's a gentle giant. And so he knocks Grant out and then dives back into the water.
1: Yeah, he's he way more Frankenstein's
0: monster. 100%. Yeah, and I don't
1: really mind that either, especially if we're going with the whole thing that, like, he's changed. Something's going on inside of him. Maybe he's less creature and more human now, so... I'm buying all those traits from him, right? Yeah, I buy yeah. that like that, that's how he would be now.
0: He's never been particularly hostile to the women in these movies, right? He recognizes these women are not threats. He jumps back into the ocean And of course, Dr. Morgan knows with his gills burned away, he will have to use his lungs and he's going to drown if he doesn't go in and get him.
1: That was a crazy scene. This sequence
0: is awesome. He grabs the tube. Yes. And he just, he's like, I'll be right back.
1: Yeah. I know they're cutting and this and that, but like, it is so tense to see the creature finally learn to like take the tube in its mouth and get some air and they're going up little by little, like, oh man.
0: That like hose breathing that they do, I learned that that's how Rico Browning shot the whole first creature movie no
1: way that's What's up? He just put that in the creature mask mouth and sucked on air to stay down there.
0: Between takes, he had to hold his breath for quite some time because once they removed the hose, they had to wait for the bubbles to settle and then he would go on with the scene. So he was still holding his breath for like 5-6 minutes at a time sometimes. But instead of having him surface all the time, they would use the air hose and that would allow him to stay underwater for extended periods of time.
1: I'm kind of a dummy, I guess, cuz I didn't know that you could actually do that to that extent. Like I knew, I thought they were taking sort of artistic liberties with the process. Like I knew you could do that with a hose, but I didn't know you could do it to this extent, right? Like you could take a super long one like that, that you could have it down there for that long, that you could actually um, use it that much. Like I thought it was sort of just like a quick thing or like, like this, like you dive in to save someone's life, you grab the hose because it's like all you got.
0: It seems like too simple to work. Like, there's no way that could work. I think, yeah, it's one of those ideas that seems too good to be true or, like, too simple to to actually work the way it seems. So he's back on board. He's unconscious. And they're they're talking about how he's capable of remembering things. You know, he he woke up from being unconscious and immediately remembered to, like, get back into the water.
1: That's like the Romero zombie explanation, you know? It's, like, buried deep in the recesses of his mind is, like, they remember, they They loved to shop, so they went to the mall. He woke up. He used to love to swim, so he jumped in the water.
0: (laughs) And and the reason that he attacks upon waking up is that he remembers, you know, being attacked. He remembers the fear, and then uh, Morgan says he tries to, you know, tries to kill anything near him. So he's drawing on those memories. But I think what Morgan's point is: what we just saw was he dove down there to rescue the Gill man, and I think he believes that the Gill man will remember being rescued by him. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. That's the argument he's making about, you know, his memory. Now we're back in San Francisco, great establishing shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. Even in black and white, you can tell it's the Golden Gate Bridge. They get to Dr. Barton's mansion. It's a pretty big house. It's like a 1950s mansion, right? It's not like a Mm -hmm. 2000s mega home. It's a good size house. It's got its own little like private zoo. Oh,
1: right. Yeah.
0: And the gill man steps out of this truck that they've got him loaded into and takes in his new home. I got to say, I kind of feel sorry for him.
1: Oh, I feel so bad for him. There's going to be a scene coming up where like people are talking, and it mirrors a scene from the last movie where you could see the Gill Man through a window between them. Except in the last movie, the Gill Man's like pushing his face against the window, trying to figure out what's going on. And in this one, he's like sad Charlie Browning. He's got his back (laughs) burned and his head down. If you just turn the volume all the way up, I bet you could hear him crying. It's just the most depressing (laughs) shot.
0: And it doesn't help that unlike previous Gilman. Masks. This one doesn't have a very emotive face, and so the mouth is just in a perpetual grimace. He just always looks sad.
1: Yeah, he's got resting sad face.
0: Now he's in like this giant cage with some goats. I think
1: there's some goats and all kinds of like farm animals on this. Again, this makes me think that this guy is more like the high evolutionary Dr. Barton, like he's testing on these animals, like he's doing bad things with this stuff. He's not free ranging chickens, you know, for the eggs or anything like that.
0: We get a little bit of a a confrontation, another confrontation between Barton and his wife, Marsha. She just wants to get out of the house, maybe drive into San Francisco and he's like, maybe if I have time later, I'll drive you myself. But for now you got to stay here and stay away from all these men. Like he's so insecure. <laughs> he tells her specifically, he doesn't want her like parading around a bunch of men.
1: Dude, look at you've even got this huge house and everything. Like you just need to take a step back. Relax.
0: He and Morgan are observing the creature through this. He calls it a two-way mirror, but I feel like it's a one-way mirror? Is that... Does it need to be a two-way mirror? Like, it could be just a
1: regular window. The monster's not looking at you anyway.
0: The point is, the creature can't see them, but they can see him. And then they have another conversation that's more about these themes that they've been hammering on throughout the movie. More about the nature versus nurture kind of stuff. And this is where we kind of get a little bit of Barton's angle here, as Morgan kind of makes the case that, you know, humans and animals that are treated well will behave well and treat others well. Barton fires back with these insecurities that he has, you know, like he's been a loyal husband and yet he believes he has an unfaithful wife. But he doesn't. Like, she's not. Right.
1: He's just insecure and paranoid.
0: He thinks it's a matter of time before this Gilman is going to get violent again. It's not about because he's an animal. This
1: is what he's really worried about the gill man's going to steal his wife. (laughs) There's enough men. Why is he trying to create another man out of another creature just to, it could like take his wife away. he could be, you know, worried that it's going to steal his wife.
0: But he insists on, on creating an environment of fear to keep the gill man behaving.
1: Well, that's his whole deal. That's what he's doing to his wife. That's what he's doing to, the, to everybody is he's got these demands, you know, it's all uh, I'm in control, you know, and do what I say and, and all this kind of shit. And it's like, that's the only thing he knows, you know, because he's scared out of his mind. So it's like, he's projecting that onto them and like trying to scare them into listening to him.
0: Yes. A really nice little scene where Marsha sort of serenades the Gilman. She's playing the guitar up on the balcony. Yeah, this is, like, where he's really taking notice of her, and I think this is where he's sort of, like, he doesn't fall in love with her the way he does in, in previous movies, but, like, this is where he starts to feel something for her.
1: Yeah, I think this is where Dr. Morgan's thesis, like, starts to come into play now, is that he sees the kindness or senses she's kind. Okay, mm-hmm. like, He's picking up a guitar and singing, and he's like, oh, like, that's very nice and and she's not like picking up you know like a needle and jabbing him or, or anything right. like that or, so I think it's more of that kind of thing coming I think that might be what I thought the movie was doing was like oh it's showing you how like yeah it, it does recognize kindness and it will be nice in that moment as opposed to like if it's attacked then it'll it'll it will attack
0: back right and Morgan also like points out to her straight up that he thinks her husband is losing his mind they sort of bond over how much they both don't like him
1: this is when i started to realize like he was gone before the movie started
0: oh yeah she's known it too so she gets it in her head that she wants to go for a swim As soon as her husband sees her in a swimsuit, he loses his mind again. Like, there's no way she's going to go out there in a swimsuit. He calls her a cheap little tramp, all because she just wants to go swimming.
1: And, like, that has to be, like, nowadays, you know, I don't want to say it, but, like, that's got to be very harsh language back then.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: He's basically like, you're parading around in your underwear. It's that. Yeah. It's
0: like that scene. And she's like, what are you talking about?
1: Like, I bought this at the department store. Everybody wears these.
0: I do love that swimsuit, by the way. It's like a white swimsuit, black polka dots.
1: Was it Vera West?
0: I think Vera was was gone. But yeah, just another great swimsuit. Love that. But of course, as she's trying to get some alone time, swimming in this lake by the house, doesn't Jed Grant show up again? Yeah. And she's continuing to reject his advances. Dude just can't take a hint. No. While they're out there doing that, this is one of the cooler scenes. Like a cougar comes onto the property.
1: Yeah. It's just like a mountain lion. California, they're there. But like it was such a wild, casual moment, right? All yeah. things considered. Like this, I thought it was a bobcat at first. And it just, this mountain cat just like wanders into frame. I'm like, is that real and then i was like why is this happening what is going on yeah and then it, it proceeds to try and attack some of the animals and yeah. the, the creature wrestles it
0: i think the implication is that he saw this mountain lion attacking a defenseless sheep yeah and defends the sheep
1: it couldn't be a clearer metaphor he saved a defenseless sheep of course
0: everybody comes running when they hear the commotion and all they see is the gill man a dead cougar and there's one dead sheep And they assume that You know, he just went nuts and murdered a couple animals, which is not the case.
1: No, and you would think that they might have thought otherwise or at least one of them could have been like, well, now don't you suppose that maybe he was defending himself and saving the sheep?
0: You would think. And so now, like, things really start to come to a head. Barton is, like, full tilt crazy. He strongly suspects that something's up with Jed Grant because he was out swimming with his wife. He tells him in no uncertain terms that he has to get out of his house or he will throw him out and on their way out jed makes some comment about how like hey man look if it wasn't me it would have been one of the other guys your wife hates you that much and like barton pistol whips them to death (laughs) to death To death.
1: it was like american psycho or some shit like he just loses it and like a switch flips and i thought he was gonna shoot him and then he just beats him with a pistol like what (laughs) What else is crazy is that this is the first death in the movie, and it's like human on human, and
0: it is so brutal. It's like R-rated brutal apparently that was like one of the things that the censors didn't want them to do was like show the actual impact of the gun i think universal got away with something here even though grant gets hit in the back of the head i don't think you were supposed to see it at all but you're right it is kind of brutal in-, in how direct it is right there's no blood or anything like that but it is pretty violent you know what i just remembered doesn't ray liotta pistol whip a guy to death in goodfellas karen's neighbor
1: you're right he walks over and he starts pistol whipping him in the- face with it, that's right. right I'm not saying this is good fellas please don't get me wrong but like but that moment crept into my head as far as the implication as far as like what's being implied here Yep. like reading between the lines and all that that we're trying to do and like that's vicious that's worse than shooting somebody right it's like beating them with the gun
0: because he definitely did not die on the first impact
1: (laughs) yeah that's like I'm gonna make sure kind of thing and yeah you have to go over the edge
0: Barton covers his tracks by uh, throwing Grant's body into the cage with the Gill man and he's gonna frame him right like he's gonna make it look like maybe Grant was in there the Gill man killed him
1: oh that's smart that's why he couldn't shoot him
0: from a narrative perspective that's why Uh, if he had shot him I don't think he could have gotten away with it but So he throws Grant's body into the cage. The Gill Man loses it. I mean, he recognizes what happened. He saw it all go down. We learn that that cage was not holding the the Gill Man in at all.
1: No way. This is like a total, we skimped on the supplies at Jurassic Park moment. And it's (laughs) like, oh shit. Yeah, it should
0: have been an electric fence maybe. But no, he tears that gate down with his bare hands.
1: We're going to see some amazing extreme strength coming up here in the climax. I love it
0: He chases Barton back into the house After absorbing a couple shots Throws uh, a bunch of furniture around There's a great moment in all the chaos When he's just flipping everything in sight When he runs into Morgan and Marsha He recognizes them as the people who were nice to him
1: Friendlies, yeah
0: and lets them go. And it's not until he sees Barton run past like a window that he sprints through this like other set of doors. It's an incredible stunt. He doesn't like burst through a wall. You know they're like glass doors, but he just barrels through them. I love that shot so much. It's like
1: the Kool Aid Man. Yeah, right? like, yep.
0: I was gonna say it's exactly like the Kool Aid Man.
1: That's why everyone fucking loves the Kool Aid Man. <laughs> Because everyone loves when someone just runs through a brick wall or or smashes through, like, plate glass windows. I mean, that's how they ended Avid and Costello meet the mummy, by having uh, Luke Costello run through a gigantic mirror. Yep. Everyone loves that.
0: So he grabs Barton and flings him off of the second floor of his house, killing him.
1: First of all, he doesn't just fling him off, okay? He picks him up and, like, body slams him off of the second floor, like, throws him down as hard as he can. Yeah. You know, it's not like he just kind of, like, tossed him over the edge. <laughs> I was like, threw him down hard with intent, yes. you know? This guy ain't getting up. I'm making sure.
0: So he makes his way off the property. He, he has a small tussle with one of the, the, the armed guards. But he, like, knocks over this huge column and fence, And then just wanders off into the night. But
1: doesn't he kick someone, hit someone, and they go flying? Yeah.
0: There's a guard with like a rifle at the gate, and he like throws him through that guardhouse.
1: I love the show of his power. You know, we got a lot of it in the last one too. He's flipping cars, he's kicking you like, you know, the length of a football field or something like that. And like we get more of that here at the end too, like the real show that like this guy is strong and you can't contain him. The only reason that he was sticking around was because he wanted to is what I'm realizing. Yes, He was kind of maybe like these guys are going to help me. But then at this point he's like, nope, forget it. Like they're just like all the others.
0: Yeah. I think by the time they get there to the house, you know, he's, he's learned that he can't survive underwater anymore. Mm. And so I imagine he had to feel like, well, what's left. Right. okay, I'm going to live in this cage. Where else am I going to go? I think he was resigned to living in a cage for a little while because he literally had nowhere else to go. But now that he's killed a guy, he can't stay there. And so he just wanders off into the night.
1: And he's like, now that I'm more human, they're going to get me for murder and put me in jail. I will say now too. So now that we're kind of getting to the end end here, the one thing I really thought might happen and i should have known because i've seen this movie before but forgot is that i thought for sure i thought for sure he was gonna say something like thank you or something at the end you know what i mean like i thought the creature would speak and i'm a little bummed he didn't
0: that could have been a fun way to go out but no unfortunately we don't get that first we get like a, a small like epilogue with the remaining cast of characters. Morgan remains hopeful because the Gillman only killed those that were a threat to him. You know, And they say Barton, what does he say? He was killed by an animal of his own making or something like that. Marsha is leaving San Francisco. We don't know where she's going, but presumably she will meet up with Morgan at some point in the future. Yeah, but they're not together
1: now, no. right? It's not like they're going to go off together, which that's different. I kind of like it. It's very Plutonic for this age in film, I feel, you know, yeah. like because yeah. everyone has to wind up a couple or something like that. And this one, she's like, you know what? I just got rid of this abusive guy who I've had to tolerate for all these years. Like, I'm good with men for a while. I got to go <laughs> off- I got to be on my own for a minute.
0: Who can blame her? And at the end of this scene, we get a report. The police officer gets a phone call that the creature's been spotted five miles away, heading toward the ocean. And that's when we cut to, like, maybe the best shot, or one of my favorite creature shots, of the creature wandering up and over this hill.
1: Yeah, to the ocean. To it's the ocean. To He's Into the water, back to the ocean.
0: Staring out into the Pacific. He's got real labored breathing, which I mm-hmm. think is intentional. And he just decides to walk back into the ocean what i read into this ending is is that he decided he didn't want to live anymore and like he was he would rather go out back into the ocean and drown if that would put an end to all the trouble and all of the heartache and and all of that I, I viewed it as a pretty downer ending
1: interesting dan i wasn't thinking that necessarily to the point where he was like i've got nowhere else to go and if i go back the ocean. I'm going to drown and die. So, like, it's the end. Might as well just go back. I was thinking a little more hopeful, maybe. I was like, well, if... He could change once. Maybe he can change again. Maybe all of this trauma and getting shot and all this other thing and whatever. Like, maybe if he makes it back to the ocean, he'll regenerate to what he was before. Like, you know what I'm saying? Maybe he can change back and forth. There's always the hope. Like, we thought he was dead twice before and he came back. Perhaps this isn't the end. So that's what I was hoping. But I I will say I do love that shot. It's both a heroic shot and a very solemn shot for the end of the creature, you know, to be alone and wounded like this. And I guess his fate is sealed. That's one reading of it for sure. Probably the right reading. I guess I'm just always holding out hope in the end. I am sure
0: that if this had been successful enough and, you know, the whole corporate restructuring wasn't happening at the time, that they would have made a sequel, and that would have been their explanation, that he went back into the ocean and was able to adapt and evolve back into an amphibious creature. And that
1: could have been a cool way to go for the next one, where he just keeps changing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Maybe he he can go full Hulk and, like, become a normal guy, and it's like a Jekyll Hyde thing at that point, and, like, he touches. (laughs) water and it's like splash and he turns into the creature right and then he dries off and he turns into like the man like a mermaid exactly okay
0: well that's it that is the end of the creature walks among us man it's the it's the last movie we're gonna talk about for a while that is wild did you have any last thoughts or anything else you want to say before we get out of here
1: about the creature about monsters that made us in general i mean maybe we should do a wrap-up episode or something like that to do those thoughts but for the creature for this film still had fun still was able to enjoy parts of it that appealed to me while kind of ignoring the bad parts, you know, this stuff. It got kind of monotonous and repetitive and you know, long-winded and uh, pseudoscience-y and all that kind of stuff, but a lot of that can be fun as well. I do acknowledge that it's not all good here. Yeah. However, like, I really enjoyed this conversation about it. Like, I feel like, you know, we got to the bottom of it pretty well and we had fun talking about it. They tried to explore some interesting things and go a different direction and I think it would have succeeded a lot better had they wanted to make this movie and by that i mean you know had the the resources to actually do it right instead of the company just being like uh we're kind of like out of the business of these monster movies like let's let's do this one and get it over with or whatever like that's sort of the vibe i get from it and i just wish there was more spirit behind it like the spirit of the previous films we watched because there's very fun interesting ideas going on here that just don't have the legs. They're just not here and I wish they were. But all in all, man, I was pleasantly surprised by this one. So I had a good time regardless.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with where the company was at the time. There's no doubt that when the studio was really behind these movies, like that's when they put out their best stuff. There's some interesting ideas in this one. I like the new creature suit. It's just a victim of that corporate mindset at the time. You know, they're done with B-movies. We're not going to put a lot of effort into this. They reused a lot of stuff for this. There aren't a lot of effect shots. You know, this is mostly people talking. A lot of that contributed to what this movie eventually became. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Uh, I will say that, you know, it's hard to not enjoy watching The Gill Man. So as much as I don't hold this one in very high esteem, you know, it's still a Gill Man movie. And he's his most sympathetic here in this one, I think. You got to talk about this one if you have any conversation about the gill man so that's it almost time for us to wander out into the sweet sweet embrace of the sea but before we do that we do have some listener mail
1: awesome so exciting
0: let's do that now we've got a repeater This is from Brian Parks. He wrote to us a few episodes ago, and he decided to follow up with us. He says, Monster Mike and Invisible Dan. Hello again, fellas. Still loving the show? I had to write again after hearing the last episode when Lester wrote in about comic books. It reminded me of something I completely forgot I had as a kid. Don't have it anymore, as my comic books were all stolen out of my brother's basement in good old Bayonne, New Jersey. Hey. Oh, sorry. But I did have a comic book version of the original Frankenstein film. It was wonderfully done by Dark Horse, I believe. The cover had Karloff when he turns around and sees Colin Clive and Van Sloan for the first time. It was such a well-done comic, I remember looking to see if any of the other Universal films got the same treatment, but was unable to find any. Do you know if any exist? Thanks to Lester, I'll try and find this comic again and see if there are any others out there. Looking forward to the end of the run and for what's next. You guys are great. Best, Batty Brian Parks.
1: Awesome. So it's so funny, because I was also thinking about our answers to that episode. And Dan, I'm going to send this to you in the chat. So when we started Monsters That Made Us, I remember I was digging through the dollar bin, and I came across an issue of Marvel Comics, The Invisible Man, adapted from the classic novel by H.G. Wells. And I found issue 25 that i'm sending but i mean it looks like it had a run i know all of their frankenstein monster stuff has been collected i have i have a bunch of that in collection but there's also this invisible man adaptation stuff and it looks amazing
0: so yeah i've never seen this before it looks really cool i would love to know how many issues it ran adapted from the novel not the original film Still still really awesome. I'm not familiar with any of the comics that were adapted from the original films.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of part of the medium. You know, it's kind of like novelizations, but for comics, and they're illustrated. So you could kind of get away with more than a film would sometimes, because you can draw whatever you can imagine, but you can't film everything you want, especially back in those days, or even when these comics were coming out, which appears to be like the 70s these or 60s. Only like two or three covers come up. Marvel Classic Comics presents The Invisible Man. Maybe Marvel Classic Comics is the series and they alternate, you know, stories or whatever. But like, yeah, I see one here. Um, there's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Marvel comic group Supernatural Thrillers feature number four featuring Dr. Jekyll and Mr.
0: Hyde. Okay, so I I see what appears to be a cover for the series that Brian is referring to, the Dark Horse Frankenstein series. Here we go. It looks like it may have been one shots.
1: Oh, okay. Okay.
0: I'm Googling on the fly here. It looks like they at least did one shots of Frankenstein, Dracula, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and the mummy. So yeah, I don't have complete information here. And I don't know that we're gonna have as much time as we need to really dive into this
1: but this is good. So, so also click the link I just sent you because I think I got to the bottom of something. I think the name of the series is Supernatural Thrillers. Marvel Comics Group presents, and so like it would be Supernatural Thrillers, Issue Two, featuring the Invisible Man, or like Supernatural Thrillers, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Issue Four, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. It's like the book adaptations done Marvel style.
0: That's super cool. I would love to find more of these like Marvel comic adaptations. I want to see if I can find these Dark Horse adaptations as well. Like I think I mentioned the last time when we talked comics that like my knowledge of Universal Monsters in comics is not great. I like comics, but my history with them is I haven't been a comic devotee like you have. There have been periods of my life where I bought and collected comics, but like I'm not like hardcore into comics like that.
1: Yeah, and even even my comic collecting history has been about collecting comic book characters. Right. So like guys like the monsters, like these monsters have always sort of been off my radar when it came to collecting. But now it's all I want to read. <laughs>
0: I am familiar with Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein, which oh, okay. Bernie Wrightson's an incredible artist. And uh, I love the illustrations for that. But I guess to answer Brian's question, I am not at all familiar with the Dark Horse adaptations, except from what I just found out doing a quick Google search. But please let us know if you're able to find them. I would love to know more about those. mean you can reach us, obviously, through email through uh twitter but yeah please please follow up if you manage to find them so i'm glad that another listener inspired brian to seek those back out
1: i I got one more recommendation when it comes to comics and monsters and all that kind of stuff and it's not necessarily that it's a universal monster adaptation but if you're familiar with the artist barry windsor smith very famous for doing the the wolverine uh the weapon x miniseries where wolverine gets his adamantium like he drew that Uh, he's just like an incredible artist so like about a year or two ago he came out with a comic it's presented as a like coffee table book size graphic novel and it's called monsters but it's basically it was his pitch for the incredible hulk apparently back in the day it's like he's basically did his version of the hulk but he didn't call it the hulk and there's a lot of you know monster themes going on, not just Hulk, but, like, the universal monster themes and things like that. So, like, if you're in the mood for, like, a horror comic, I think this might scratch that itch to a degree, too, so.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm looking up the uh, the cover. They picked a hell of uh, an image for the cover. So that's really cool. So, cool. I will definitely look into that as well. All right, that's all, folks. That is... The end of, I guess, season one of The Monsters That Made Us. I don't really think wow. of it in seasons. I think we're more just covering eras. Because like, our next quote-unquote season will not be a 32 episodes. I can guarantee that. You know, we'll be back eventually. But for now, I think we're going to enjoy a few months off to enjoy the summer and prepare for what we do next.
1: Oh, it would be super cool if we came back like on Halloween again. Or at least make an announcement by Halloween.
0: I don't want to bury the lead. My goal is to be back in October. So I don't want to make any promises. Keep an eye on our social media. Stay subscribed to our show wherever you listen to it so you don't miss an episode. We'll make sure to let you know when we are officially coming back. So follow us on Twitter at Monster Made Pod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And then you can follow me on Twitter if you want. I'm at Dan Colon. Mike, where can listeners find you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore mikester. That's the underscore M-I-K-E-S-T-I-R. I I realized on this and other shows I'd never spell it out. People could be going to Mike, stir, s-t-e-r s-t-i-r and then you can find all the other shows i'm on at cageclub.me
0: if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes and we can't forget about our t-shirts on t public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody